this projector uh, overhead and explore the stage a little bit maybe today. Okay, well, if you've been keeping track and you've got your Bibles here, we're, we're back in the Gospel of Mark, and we've come to chapter 10. And if you've read the title of chapter 10, we're going to take the first 12 verses that are, uh, that are incorporated in a section called Teaching About Divorce. Isn't that just fun? Let's just all talk about, we're going to talk about divorce today. I'm sure each and every one of you got out of bed this morning and said, I want to go to church and I hope there's a sermon over divorce because that will feel great, right? Mmm, divorce, right? Nobody jumps out of bed like that and nobody thinks that way about this subject. It's not a fun subject, but as I mentioned in the prayer, we don't come to church uh, just to, to feel better about ourselves or to feel happy, right? We, we come to church because we do that out of obedience, and at times we have the, the most joy-filled filled moments of, of celebration. Sometimes we, we mourn together. Other times we, we are equipped with hard topics in scriptures such as the one that is here today. So I, I don't want to sugarcoat that or try to Jedi mind trick you. I don't want to say like, oh, today's actually about marriage. Well, that, that would be true, wouldn't it? But it's about how marriage ends sometimes, and that's, that's a bummer. Um, but I, I, want, I want to say two things that I'm trying to be mindful of today. Being that this is such a hot topic, a, a sensitive topic to discuss, I, I, I just want you to know I'm trying to find a balance between these two things. I, w- I always want to be bold and courageous whenever we're talking about a difficult or sensitive topic because that's what honors God. I want to be true to his word. I want to be honest with you as to what his word says, especially when it's talking about such a difficult uh, topic. And, And he is what's right and good, and his word is what is right and good. We're the fallen ones. We need this. Okay, so that's one thing that I want to be mindful of today. But two, I also want to be uh, to deliver this message with gentleness and kindness because that's also attributes of his spirit. And, I, and this, this topic, it's going gonna, it's gonna to land on people in, in different ways. Okay? Divorce has impacted your life in some way, shape, or form, no matter who you are. And so it, this, this topic may land on your ears different than the person that's in the, in the aisle next to you or in the seat next to you. You know, some of you have been through a divorce. Some of you have grown up in divorce, uh, divorced homes like myself. Uh, some of you are considering divorce. Some of you have helped friends go through a divorce. I mean, it, it's just impacted everybody. And so just saying that word, for some of you, I just said, as soon as I said that word, that wound was just, it was poked a little bit, and it causes you to cringe. So... Just, just be mindful of those around you. You know, th- this is going to impact everyone, I think, in a little bit different way. But I, I, I want you to know that this is what is good for you. This is what is good for me. This is what is good for us to look into God's word, to see what he teaches about this subject, no matter if it's a fun time or a not-so-fun time together. And to understand that th- his word is, is to, again, equip us. And so, so praying through this scripture, that's what's going to honor God. Studying this scripture and not skipping over it, that's what's going to honor God. And, and applying it and thinking through it, that is all for our good. So this is, a, this is a healthy time, a healthy time. Okay, so this is teaching on divorce. And I want you to understand that in this moment, just to gather 
to get our, our head around the context. Jesus didn't go around typically just talking about divorce all the time. You know, he, he was a traveling evangelist because he took the, the gospel message and, and he preached the gospel everywhere that he went. This is a moment in which he has shown up into the southern portion of Israel now. He's left Galilee and he is preaching the gospel and some Pharisees show up and they want to hijack this time of teaching. And so they want to get Jesus to talk about something really controversial. They want to get him to say something stupid so that they can hopefully discredit him, or even worse, get him in a situation in which it would get him killed. We're going to talk about that. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, and let's just take the first two verses to get our bearings here. It says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered, him, gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Okay, so again, everything we've talked about in Mark, it's taking place in Galilee. That's the northern region of Israel. The middle region would be Samaria. The southern region would be Judea. And so now he's traveled down to Judea. So what's been happening every time in Mark when the Pharisees arrive on the scene, they've been traveling from Judea, to investigate his ministry. What is, what is everybody so hyped about when it comes to Jesus? What is it that he's preaching that is gaining so much traction and getting so much attention? And how, his, how is his ministry so popular? They would travel, and they, and they, would, they were so skeptical of Jesus, and, and he wasn't like the Pharisees and the scribes and, and the Sadducees and everything like that. And so they were very skeptical, and they, and they didn't like the popularity that he was, that he was getting and so they would say things to try to discredit him, get in arguments with him there. And so now he's on their turf. Now he's traveled to the southern portion of Israel, near where like Jerusalem would be, those places, the, the temple. And so the Pharisees are, are like, hey, he's on our turf now. We're ready, and uh, we're going to start some trouble. So let's talk about something polarizing. He can't win. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? In other words, they're asking, is, is, is it permissible in the eyes of God to get a divorce? Is it ever okay uh, to get a divorce? Are there legitimate grounds for, for a divorce in the eyes of God? So I think most of us in here, we probably have this, uh, we probably stereotype this time in history. We just figure divorce never happened. We, we, we uh, make the mistake of thinking that, well, that's not a controversial issue in, in biblical times. Nobody ever got divorced. They, they just were married forever, and you didn't have any choice. And, and uh, that is positively wrong. There were seasons in Hebrew history in which divorce flared. And so, like, it has flared in America. You could go back and look at the statistics, right? It used to be that 10% of marriages ended in divorce, and that kept climbing through the 20th century, and now... Like the statistic everybody runs to is oh, one in every two marriages end up in divorce. And, and so, I, and, I, and I don't doubt any of those, but it, it's so common in our culture. It was actually pretty common during that day as well. And so believers, like they do today, they debated whether, over, over issues of divorce and whether or not there were legitimate grounds for divorce. Can you get a divorce in a way that is permissible in the eyes of God? And so they debated these things just like we debate these things in this day and age. In their day and age, there was three schools of thought in Hebrew culture. The, the 
the Qumran uh, school of thought, they, they were a sector of Jews who believed there were no legitimate grounds for divorce. Under no circumstance is anyone to ever get a divorce. Then the second school of thought was the Shammai school of thought. And they said the only grounds for a legitimate divorce is in the case of adultery. And so they were still pretty strict, but there was an exception. And then there was the third school of thought, and this was the school of Hillel, who was a, uh, a very well-known, popular Hebrew rabbi back in the day. And he basically said, any reason is fine. And so he, he didn't say it in so many words. He actually made a list of reasons. I wrote down a couple for you. If, you, if your wife burnt your dinner, that was grounds for divorce. <laughs> I am not making this up. If your wife uh, twirled and her ankles were exposed during that twirl, you could divorce her. Legitimate grounds for divorce. Um, if you were unpleased with her behavior, divorce. If you deemed her less pretty than someone else, you could divorce her. So essentially, if you read through the list uh, that Hillel produced for his students, his disciples, you would come to the conclusion, conclusion that virtually any reason whatsoever, you could get a divorce. And yes, all of these rules were geared towards or, or pointed towards women because typically the man was the only person who was able, legally able, to get a divorce. Uh, and, and so with the exception of like, unless you were like an upper class uh, woman from a prominent family, in the Hebrew culture, then you might be able to legally pull off a divorce, but for the most part, it was something that uh, was exclusively reserved as a right for men to do, but other people could. Okay, so, but overall, with those three schools of thought, people were divided. Very, very divided. It was a hot-button issue. If you brought this topic up during Thanksgiving dinner, there would be a riot in your house. People did not land on the same page. Uh, and so they just avoided the topic. And so they were like, ah, oh, perfect, perfect. Let's take that issue before Jesus while he's in front of a crowd of people. They're all looking to him for, for learning and knowledge. And let's, let's just see what he has to say about divorce because he can't win. Of course, it was clear where God stood on divorce. Like when you read in the Old Testament, he says, and I quote, I hate divorce. That's pretty clear. It's pretty cut and dry. That's, you can find that in Malachi. And actually, when you go study the context of Malachi chapter 2, that was, that, was, uh, that was a message that God had through his prophet Malachi during a time when Jewish men were divorcing their Jewish wives to marry pagan women and then they would get convicted of that because you weren't supposed to marry unbelievers. And then they would divorce their pagan wives and, and marry Jewish women again. And it just, it just made a mess of everything, a mess of families. And, it was, and so God just said, I hate all of this. I hate divorce. So if, we, you know, if, if you just think about that, that verse alone, isn't that enough to just stop us in our tracks and take divorce incredibly serious? Isn't that enough that God hates it to really stop us and think, well, then I should hate it too if he hates it. It's never pleasing to God. It is permissible at times, and we'll discuss that. We're going to look at several passages today, and I'm going to reference several passages, but I really want to focus on what's happening primarily in this moment, okay? So I'm not going to exhaust 
every single passage on divorce in Scripture today. Uh, time will not allow it. I really want to focus on this debate and how the Pharisees were building their debate and, and their, uh, their questioning and how Jesus was framing, reframing the conversation. That's kind of that's where we're at. So, so here, here's, here's why it was controversial, though, just in a nutshell. People back in that day, there were, there were people who would just take the Word of God and twist it and pervert it and, and, and use it in a way to justify anything just like people do, do today still, right? There's just, no matter what time you're living in, there's always going to be that group of people or that one guy who's just going to take the Word of God and twist it and warp it to say whatever he wants it to say and not, straight, not stay true to it. That's what the Pharisees were doing. And they were doing this in a way that would trap Jesus. So I want you to understand the trap first. So this, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife by, by framing it that way to Jesus, if Jesus says, yes, it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife, then they can run to two of those schools of thought and say, see, Jesus is way more liberal with this idea than what you thought. You, he's, he's saying you can get divorced over any matter whatsoever. Like, you, you can't follow this guy. They would use that answer to discredit Jesus amongst the more conservative-minded Jews. But if, if Jesus said, no, there is no grounds for divorce, well, that would, bode well, that would not bode well for Jesus either. Because did you, did you notice where he was at again? He's in, the, he's in Judea on the other side of the Jordan. That was, that was a, a portion of Israel known as Perea. And you know who is in charge of Perea? We've talked about him several times in Mark up to this point. Herod Antipas. And what was Herod Antipas notorious for? He was the guy, if you remember, who divorced his wife and married his niece. So he had all kinds of weird problems going on in his life. And do you remember who criticized him publicly to the nation of Israel? John the Baptist criticized him for divorcing his wife and, and getting married and said, this is wrong. Mary, your, your divorce was wrong, marrying your niece is wrong, this is all wrong. And what happened to John the Baptist for criticizing Herod Antipas? His head was served up on a platter, literally executed, beheaded. Jesus is in that same territory where Herod Antipas is in charge. And so these Pharisees know that, and that's why we're told geographically where he's at. His life is in danger. If they can get Jesus to say there are no legitimate grounds for divorce, then they can run to Herod Antipas and say, hey, remember John the Baptist, right? And this Jesus who you think is like John the Baptist reincarnated or something, remember that, that side of the, of, the, of, the, of the story as well? He was leery of Jesus already. He's saying the same critical things about you that John the Baptist was saying. You need to behead him as well. So this is all a, a plot to kill Jesus, and we're supposed to see that in the text. And so... If Jesus answers yes, he's in trouble. If he answers no, he's in trouble. So Jesus does what Jesus often does. He reframe, reframes the entire conversation. He answers a question with a question. He does this masterfully. Look, look at verse 3. It says, verse 3 says, He answered them, what did Moses command you? See how he redirects the conversation? Is it lawful for a, a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? What's the Bible say? What does the Bible say about that? What does the law say? 
It's such a great question. You know, when you're trying to discern the answer to this question, what, like, is it lawful to, to, to divorce your wife? Well, what, what, is, what does the Bible say? See, he, he's, he's reposturing everyone. Let's go to God's word. Let's see how he feels about divorce. And if that's your heart, right, if that truly is your heart, you can tell a lot about somebody and how they go about finding answers. You know, when you go into Scripture, what heart are you taking with you into Scripture? What, are, you, are you going there with an agenda? Are you going there, uh, you know, just trying to find confirmation bias? Or are you looking for the actual answer? You know, the, what, are, what is your purpose? Why? Where, why are you looking there? What are you looking for? Where are you looking? And so when we see the Pharisees try to answer Jesus' question, what, is, what does Moses say? It's going to expose their whole heart, and we're going to talk about that. They're looking for loopholes, okay? And Jesus, when we see his approach to answering that question, we see that he's after the heart of God, and that's what you and I should be after. When we're looking to the, for the answers to these hot-button issues, we're not looking for an answer that helps us blend in culture. When we go after these answers with the heart of God, we want first and foremost to honor God and his word, his righteousness, we want to be holy as he is holy. And this is what Jesus teaches us to do as he answers this question. So see if you can identify that dichotomy as I read their answers to his question in response to their question. Let's read four through nine. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of, your hard, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So did you see that dichotomy there, the way they answered the question versus the way Jesus answered the question? Let's start with the way they answered the question. Moses allowed for there to be a certificate of divorce. Now, they know the law, the Torah, like the back of their hand. Jesus did too. He knows what they're going for immediately. He knows what they're referencing. You and I, we've got to go looking for this stuff, right? Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, there's your homework text. This is what they are referencing, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. It's actually a pretty simple text to read, it, but for the sake of time, I just want to summarize it for you. If and when you go there, here's what you'll find. It's a case law. It's a scenario, and then a command based on that scenario. If you find yourself in this situation, or this case, here's a command to apply to that situation. That's what, that's what you'll find in, in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. So here's the scenario that's laid out. When you read that, it says, here's the, here's the case, here's the situation. A man issues a certificate of divorce to his wife because of an indecency found in her. And then she goes on to marry another man. And her second husband if he either divorces or her or dies, here comes the command. She is not allowed to marry the first husband again. That's what Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 is stating. It's a scenario and then a command. If the lady 
uh, is divorced, she marries another man, and then he divorces her or dies, she's not allowed to marry her first husband again. It's an abomination to the Lord, it says. Why is that there? Why? Why can she not remarry her first husband? Well, that rule was put in place so that women would not be exploited. And so here's what would happen back in that day. When you would marry someone, the father of the bride would provide a dowry. And that was a gift to his daughter and her husband for their marriage. And it would be livestock or money, and most oftentimes it was land. And so each time a woman was married in that day, the father of the bride would offer up another dowry depending on the wealth that he had available to him to give every time one of his daughters were married. So this law was put in place to prevent this. Sometimes, due to the hardness of hearts and the evil of mankind and the sinfulness that existed then like it does today, men would strike up deals with one another. Hey, that dad, he's got bags of money laying around. He's got a ton of land. He's got a ton of livestock. I'm going to marry his daughter, and I'm going to get a dowry. And then I'm going to take that dowry, and it's mine forever. I'm going to divorce her, and then you can marry her next. And then his buddy over here marries the same woman. And he gets a dowry. He gets some land or livestock or bags of money. And then he says, hey, all right, I'm going to divorce her now, and you can marry her again. And we'll just keep going back and forth like this to collect as many dowries as we can possibly collect. And so women would be exploited in this way if they came from an especially wealthy family. And so this law was put in place to protect women from that type of evil, okay? And so the Pharisees, though, they were just playing games with Scripture. They, 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 weren't, they weren't concerned with uh, preventing women from being exploited or anything like that. They were taking the scenario and turning it into a command. They couldn't get past the part that just said, a man issues a certificate of divorce due to an indecency in his wife. Oh, well... We must be able to do that whenever we want. It was just a scenario, but they're using it as justification. And what's an indecency then? Well, an indecency is anything we want it to be. If she burns your dinner, if she's ugly, if she twirls on her ankle shows, you can do that's any of those things are indecencies. And so this is the game that they were playing. And you, again, you can tell when people do this today over a controversial issue. They go into scripture. They already know what they, they, already know what they believe and what they're going to believe. It's just a matter of can I use anything in here to justify that belief that I'm going to have no matter what. If that's your approach, it, it, it's just you're, you're always going to find the same thing over and over. Whatever you want to find, that's what you're going to find, right? We don't go into scripture with that intent as believers. We go into scripture to be edified, to be changed. It's to renew our minds, it's to think differently. We don't naturally think like the morality that we read in scripture. We have to go there and learn and then conform to the word of God and conform to morality based off his righteousness. That's what we're there to do. So we need to go into scripture always in an effort to seek change. It's called repentance. That's what renewing your mind or or changing your mind. That's what repentance literally is, changing your mind. So Jesus takes a totally different approach. He has a, a totally different starting point, point. He says, you want to talk about divorce? What does Moses say? 
well, if you want to talk about divorce, you need to talk about marriage. He goes all the way back to the beginning. From the beginning of creation, now his starting point doesn't begin at some cultural trend. It's not based on those three schools of thought. He goes right past all those famous teachers and schools of thought, right back to the beginning of the Word of God in Genesis. From the beginning of creation, here's God's design. Here's the ideal model. Before sin messed everything up, here's what marriage is supposed to be. God made them male and female. That is, he designed this special complementary relationship between a man and a woman. Therefore, he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That is, this new relationship that God has designed, it's to take priority over every other relationship. Your, your allegiance to your parents are now secondary because you have this allegiance to the one you are going to be with for the rest of your life, and it surpasses all the other relationships. The two shall become one flesh in this special designed relationship, those two people are going to do it. He's talking about sex there. Two will become one flesh, right? And it's awesome. Sex within the confines of marriage is the best sex there is. That's a whole nother sermon. We'll get there later. But it's more than that. The two shall become one flesh. But then he, he, he says something a little more profound they are no longer two, but one. No longer two, but one flesh. There's no more me. It's only we from this point on. That's a mindset that changes everything, and that will determine the climate of your marriage. This, if, if you take a, and, and I'm stealing these two words. I, I heard a pastor frame it this way. He talked about a meistic approach and a weistic approach. Those aren't words. And so I love it when people make up words and then use them effectively. And so I'm totally stealing this idea. But it was a great way to frame it. It got me thinking about a lot of different things. You know, when we go into marriage, if we take this meistic approach that we're so prone to, it's going to break your marriage down. Too many people take that meistic approach into their relationship with their spouse. It all becomes about their self-fulfillment. It becomes about their happiness and having their needs, their needs met 24-7. If you take a meistic approach into your marriage, it's all about you having the highest quality of emotions 24-7. And, and again, it's just all about you. Marriage isn't for you. It's going to break down your marriage because your spouse can't win that battle. If it's all about you and feeling great 24-7, your spouse cannot win. They cannot make you happy all the time. They cannot meet every single one of your needs. They cannot ensure that you're going to have the highest quality of emotions for the rest of your life. No one can deliver on that. So to hold them to that is to take a self-centered, meistic approach into your, into your marriage. And I think our culture feeds into that, right? We, we, we treat self-centeredness practically as virtuous in our society today, right? We, we create a whole rhetoric around this. We can justify almost anything by saying things like, don't I deserve to be happy? Don't I deserve to be happy? That's just such an easy, vague thing to say. That doesn't mean anything. Don't I but it's an easy rhetoric, rhetoric to adopt and justify whatever you want. Don't I deserve to be happy? I just need to be true to myself and express who I am, right? We can justify anything with, 
with vagueness like that. We, hey, hey, you're, you're, you're trying to limit my happiness and my fulfillment with your rules. Stop doing that. I just got to do what's best for me. <laughs> Stupid. So, I mean, we, we, if that's how you build morality, that is such a dumbed down, harmful way to have morality. I mean, if your morality, again, is built on self-fulfillment, you're, you're going to just trash the lives of those who live around you. Because it's all about you all the time. And here's the truth. Morality isn't built or based on fulfillment. It never has been that way, right? Morality is based on God. For the believer, it's based on his righteousness. And doing the right thing isn't always contingent or isn't supposed to be contingent on feeling good. Sometimes doing the right thing is awful. But we don't base morality on the way we feel or self-fulfillment or self-centeredness. We base morality on who God is. Now, if both of you in your marriage take a weistic approach, that's what's going to give life to your marriage. This grace-centered, gospel-centered approach is, is a weistic approach. And so... Here, here's the thing, and this, this is the way that I'll describe it. Whenever I do premarital counseling for couples uh, before their, their wedding day, I always say, like, hey, you've you got to take a, a grace-centered approach in your marriage or you're just never going to make it. You're just going to be a part of the statistic there. And here's how this works. So in my marriage to Amanda, I imperfectly put my wife's needs before my own. I imperfectly put her desires before my own. I want to serve her. That's my goal. That is a grace-centered approach. She is more important than me. I'm going to put her ahead of myself in all things. That's a grace-centered approach to a marriage. I'm going to imperfectly do that, and she's going to imperfectly do the same thing towards me. And if both of you were doing that, I'm telling you, your marriage won't fail. But if even one of you starts to take a meistic approach in putting yourself before the other person, you are on the decline. Things are going to start breaking down and not being built up. This is a posture motivated by the grace of God. By the grace of God and his glory through his gospel. And here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. When you have that grace-driven obedience toward God in your marriage, it will bring you eternal fulfillment eternal fulfillment not just a moment of happiness we're talking about eternal fulfillment fulfillment with no regrets you're, you're never going to regret putting your spouse first you, know, you see see how jesus is reframing now now we're in the headspace to talk about divorce thank you jesus now we're in the right headspace you want to talk about divorce think about what god intended for marriage he says what what god what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God has a role in this, a sovereign role in this. This is his design, and so it's a, it's a covenant, it's a promise. It's meant to be permanent, and divorce is contrary to that purpose. Well, after this time of teaching, and this, I, I bet you there was an awkwardness that fell over the crowd and, and, and between Jesus and the Pharisees and this really polarizing moment and Jesus is just going back and forth with them. After that, all died down and it's just the disciples. They're like, okay, we need, 
We got more questions, Jesus. And we, and we get the answers to those questions. In verse 10 through 12, it says this. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Whew. Mm. It's pretty tough. Now, we know in the context, we just studied the whole context. We considered Deuteronomy 24. We thought about what they were asking versus what Jesus was asking versus their answer versus Jesus' answer. And, and so we know that he's saying to divorce your spouse for an illegitimate reason, like what the Pharisees are suggesting. To divorce your wife for an illegitimate reason and then start up another marriage, God's not going to honor that divorce, and therefore he's not going to honor this relationship. Both are illegitimate. And so it's like committing adultery. It's like breaking one of the Ten Commandments at that point. He's talking about an illegitimate divorce. Now, we know he's talking about an illegitimate divorce because of what we've been reading in context, but also in the parallel passage in, in the Gospel of Matthew, we have the same moment, and Jesus offers up an exception clause. And in that moment, this is Matthew 19, 9, it says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so that would be an example of a legitimate reason for a divorce. And so he's saying, in that case, if you divorce your spouse due to sexual immorality and you get remarried, it's not committing adultery in that point because you had a legitimate reason to get a divorce, therefore your new relationship can be legit. Now, when you read in other passages in Scripture, and again, I'm not going to exhaust them all, but there are other exceptions. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul in chapter 7 gives another exception, for example. He said if you're married to a non-believer and they leave, they abandon you, you can issue a certificate of divorce and you are able to get remarried. The whole point of the divorce certificate was to allow you to legally get remarried again. And so if there is abandonment, you are allowed to get a divorce. So there are legitimate reasons to get a divorce. They're, they're not ideal. They're not pleasing. God hates divorce, but they are permissible. Now, I want to be really honest here. When you start fleshing that out, that gets complicated. I'm not going to sit here and act like every situation is real cut and dry. When you think about these exceptions that exist in Scripture— and then you analyze every single situation. Well, guess what? Every single situation is unique. There are different variables every single time. And when I sit down with people who go through a dark season of life like this, it's not always really cut and dry. I mean, you start to, you start to you know, really flesh this stuff out. Well, what constitutes sexual immorality? Oh, okay, that's a big umbrella. Let's talk about this. What constitutes abandonment? Well, it's, it's kind of a... a bigger umbrella when you really think about it. How sure are you that someone is a believer or not? I mean, applying these biblical ethics, it's difficult. So I, I think it requires a lot of grace, a lot of prayer, a lot of time in God's word, a lot of discussion. These aren't things that you do quickly. But I want to leave you with two thoughts. I want you to know and think about this and pray about this this week. Your, your Christian marriages are so important to the kingdom of God. Our marriages are so important to the expansion of God's kingdom. They provide, a, they provide concrete for people. 
your marriage, it's, it's not even about just you two, right? Your marriage, when, it, when you have a solid, grace-centered marriage, you're providing concrete not only for the person you're married to, but you're providing concrete to everyone around you. Your kids get to have something stable. They get something concrete in their life. And when you live in the shifting sands of culture where everything's just a swirling mess of chaos, it's nice to have some concrete to stand on. It also provides concrete for your extended family. It provides concrete for the people you work with and live with in your community. It provides concrete for your church family. When you have a solid, dependable, concrete marriage and you're a part of the Journey Church, you are providing stability and fulfillment, not just for you two, but for everyone in the church. It's dependable. It's something they can count on. It's something that they can lean on. It's so, so important to the life of our church, and it's so important to the life and the community within which you live. There is a lot more at stake than just you and your stinking happiness. Second thing I'll leave you with is that people who have been through an illegitimate divorce, I want you to know that you have not committed the unforgivable sin. Jesus died for that sin, and in and, and the kingdom of God, the, the doors aren't closed to you. I would encourage you to repent, press into the gospel, and that's what we do each and every Sunday here at The Journey. None of us in here have the perfect marriage. We're not living the perfect life. We all struggle with sin in our marriages. We struggle with sin in our, all of our relationships because we're all sinful. And so every time we gather, we bring it back to the gospel of Jesus Christ who died for that sin. And so when we take that bread, we're not saying, look how holy I am doing something religious. Quite the opposite. We're saying, I am so sinful that I am completely dependent upon the righteousness of another in order to be right with God. There is nothing about my righteousness that makes me right with God. There's nothing about my righteousness that earns salvation before God. It's dependent upon another, the righteousness of Jesus. That's why we take that bread. And we take that juice to remember our sins have all been atoned for. I don't have to work off my sin. I don't have to get back in the favor of God by doing enough good that it outweighs the bad. That's not what this is. It's to remember that Jesus died for that sin. All of my sin has been paid for past, present, and future. He died for sins I haven't even committed yet. My faith is completely in Christ alone. He has shown me grace. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. And that's the same grace we're to live with in our marriages. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time of study over divorce. Lord, everybody in here probably had a certain moment in their life come to mind. Some, it's pretty fresh. Lord, I just pray that this teaching would not aggravate that wound, but that would be applied by your Holy Spirit so that it would be a healing time, even if it's painful. It's what's good for us. I pray that this passage of Scripture did accomplish that good in our hearts and minds today. Lord, we want to have strong marriages, not just so that we can have temporary fulfillment. We want eternal fulfillment, but Lord, that's all wrapped up in who you are and your glory. Help our marriages to be about you. Help us to be gracious like you 
so that we can provide concrete for people that we live around. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We just pray that you would bless us in a time of communion. It's in your name we pray. Amen.